Church family, excited you're here tonight, and uh, we are going to cover a lot. <laughs> I won't tell you how many pages of notes are just for tonight. You have a cheat sheet that is the best I could give you for now. There's a lot I'm going to mention that's not on there, but I'm going to do my best to say it slowly, and you can record what you want, or I'd be more than happy to share an uh, edited form of my notes with you, because there's a lot of examples I will give tonight. Uh, back when we started, the first week we started walking through Bibleology, we spent a night just, uh, just looking at what does the Bible say about the Bible. And we, we, we looked heavily at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where it says that all Scripture is, is likely your Bible says inspired, but the, the literal Greek word is breathed out by God. All Scripture, all that constitutes what Scripture is, is breathed out by God. We looked further at several other passages that sees how did God breathe out Scripture. Well, God, the Holy Spirit, inspired human authors to put pen to paper, although if you want to be technical, some of them it was something to papyrus. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know what the form of scroll is, or a pen is for that, but... In that we saw, though, if, 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 if all Scripture is breathed out by God, then there's five realities, and I put those for sake of review on your cheat sheet. It means that Scripture is then authoritative because it's God's Word, and God is God. He bears all authority, so His Word is authoritative. We said it's inerrant. It is without error because God Himself is without error. So if God is without error, how could what He say then be filled with error? That would cause problems. We said it's sufficient. It's all we need to know and, and, and love and follow God. It's understandable, meaning it's able, for, uh, it's able for you and I as human beings to understand and, and instead of just guessing or trying to figure out or, you know, what's, I think there's a book back in the day, the Bible Code, take every such, you know, every seventh letter and write it down and then every third letter and then and you get the special code. It's, it, no, it's, it's straightforward. It's understandable. And we said it's powerful. So tonight we've said the tagline of, well, what do you do with those claims that then there are errors in the Bible because that presents a massive problem if in fact there are errors in the Bible. And it, 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 it under, all of a sudden, if there are errors in the Bible and the Bible claims to be God's very breathed out word, then that means God breathed out error, which means God's a liar for telling us he didn't breathe out error, which means that can God really be trusted at all because he's breathing out that which is false? It means that you and I now, in fact, by default, are a higher standard of truth than God because we're now judging the faultiness of his words, which then means you don't get to pick and choose what's true. You should be pretty safe to just reject all of it. And so the, my aim tonight as we walk through, there is no possible way that I can cover tonight everything someone throws out saying this is an error. My goal is to do a general overview over the three categories with this hope and prayer that wherever you are at tonight, you will walk away with a greater level of confidence that God's word really is inerrant and it can stand up to whatever new error we find to toss at it. And here's why I say that, because as we think about the bigger category we've really been in, which is having a biblical worldview, if you're going to have a biblical worldview, it is going to cost you in the decisions you make in this world. If you're going to have a biblical worldview and you're confronted with your family wanting you to make this decision that goes against Christ... And to follow Christ puts you at odds with your family such that you could even lose the relationship. The only way you're going to do that is if you are supremely confident in God and in his word. I'll give you a classic example. I've used this with students many times. If right now my phone buzzes with one of those awful noises from the weather, the National Weather Service, or Amber Alert, or Silver Alert, it's the same tone. And it says that there is a mile-wide, mile hundred-foot-tall fire, and it will be here at the church in 10 minutes. 
you and I are going to react one of two ways. There's only one of two reactions. You're either leaving or you don't care. And, and your reaction's dictated on one of really two realities. How confident are you in that weather service alert? And those of you who are confident and who trust and who think that weather service alert is real, you're going to get up, you're going to get in your car, you're going to head out. And those of you who go, nah, that's just a massive prank from the government, we're, we're going to stay. But, here's, but catch this, understand, regardless of whether or not you believe the word or not, regardless of whether you leave or you stay, that fire's either real or not, and if it's real, it's going to burn you if you stay. Doesn't matter what your response or thought is, if it's real, you just got to deal with the consequences one way or the other. God's word says a lot of stuff that a lot of times we approach and we go, the way a lot of, as believers we approach, it, yeah, that's true, but then if you look at our actual lives, we kind of treat it like we don't really actually believe it's as true as we say it is. So my hope is to produce a confidence as we look at it. So just give you some basics. God's Word, it's authored by over 40 different authors who wrote in vastly and, dr and dramatically different times and circumstances. You have writers who are writing as second in command of, of powerful empires. You have writers who are writing on the run, hiding for their life. You have writers who are writing in freedom. You have writers who are writing in captivity. You have writers who are the most educated of their day. You have writers who are backwater, backwoods, blue-collar workers that no one would have paid attention to in their day. You have different circumstances, different access to materials. You have this all taking place over a period of 1,600 years. Yet you find from cover to cover in the Bible, complete and total unity, there is one story about one God who has a relationship with the one people made in his image, who sends the one Savior to do what you and I cannot do, what you and I have failed to do, in order to reconcile any who would believe to himself. There is unity of story, there is unity of doctrine. Realize the utter impossibility of that reality. And if you go, well, help me out, Pastor. All right, let me help you out. There are, goodness, what's the number now? I think there's 27 Marvel Cinematic Universe movies today. I don't care if you like Marvel movies. You don't have to like any, but understand that back in the mid-2000s, a guy by the name of Kevin Feige said, we're going to make a movie, and if it does well, we're going to make another and our ultimate goal is going to be to make all these movies that all have the same ultimate storyline and tie together and interconnect and come out and sometimes cross over. And it's going to be one universe, total uni unity. They had a goal to make a unified story. And with all their pre-planning, with the goal to have a unified story, if you watch all those movies, you'll catch that for the most part they did really good. But there's a lot of times they contradict themselves too understand what, what happens in Scripture, the fact that it is 40 different authors, 1,600 years, different times, different circumstances, one unified story and doctrine is nothing short of miraculous. And the Bible itself says that it is, the Bible doesn't appeal to outside authority. Notice when it says that all Scripture is God-breathed, it doesn't appeal to outside authority to justify that statement. It appeals to its own authority. It's self-attesting, which means that truly Scripture cannot be subjected to any other field of study for its authority. If you are looking for the Bible to be authoritative on the basis of all these other fields proving it, it doesn't mean these other fields don't have facts. We're going to look at those facts to demonstrate how true the Bible is. But if your reason for confidence in the Word is because all these things point to it, you're going to ultimately have an issue with the authority of God because you subjected the Word to another authority. We've said if all Scripture is not inerrant, we've got a problem. Now, you've got a definition on your paper. There's two definitions. The first two, inerrancy. Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that's contrary to fact, nor does it contradict, contradict itself, but is flawless and perfect. Now, you'll catch there in that definition, Scripture in the original manuscripts, right? There is only one original copy of the book of Genesis, and Exodus, and, and Matthew, and, and Mark, and Philippians. 
we do not know of or hold a single one of the original manuscripts of Scripture. And before you go, oh my goodness, pastor, are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you, and it's a really good thing we don't. And I'll explain that here in a second. But it's not a problem. The originals are without error, and the reason it's phrased like that is because you can choose to change what the Bible says, claim it's the Bible, but it would be an error. The first big church history person to do that is Marcion, but the, the, probably the biggest example for you and I today is Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson had a Bible, and in his Bible, he systematically cut out every supernatural miracle because he said they're impossible. Now, he would say, I've got a Bible, but his Bible's not inerrant. It's an error because he made changes to it. So that's why we say the original manuscripts. Now, here's the beautiful part. The next definition, textual variance, means any place among the manuscripts in which there is a variation in the wording. This would mean word order, an omission of a word, an additional word, or even a spelling difference. What we have are not the originals. What we have are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of copies that ultimately are of the original manuscript. And here's why this is important. Let's flip it. Let's say we, we had somewhere in, I don't know, the Museum of the Bible, the original manuscript. If I right now took out and wrote a note, and I, before I came in here, and I said, guys, this is the original this is the original manuscript. You go, oh, wow, that's great. Until someone goes, oh, actually, it's not the original manuscript. This is the original manuscript. No, this is the original manuscript. And all three say totally different things. It's easier to cause doubt on one original manuscript than it is when you have thousands of thousands of thousands. If I took that same thing and right now I wrote a note that says Jesus loves you, and you got five seconds to read it, and you had to copy it down on your own paper, and everyone in the room did it. We would have over a hundred copies of the original. Let's throw the original away, toss it away, but let's read every copy. If every copy says, Jesus loves me, we know what the original said. If two copies out of those say, Jesus loves me, but those two copies say, Jesus loves you, we're also still really confident in what the original said. Because there is such an overwhelming amount of evidence that has been painstakingly copied. And we'll go in more next week to how it's painstakingly copied. But just for the stats, we have over 300 uh, ancient Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament. We have over 5,800 ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. In addition, we have more than 20,000 ancient translations of those documents in other languages. And that would include thousands of Greek versions of the Hebrew Old Testament. That would even precede our Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And over 30,000 scriptural quotations from the early church fathers. The early church fathers, you had the apostles. The apostles led men to Christ, who then became pastors after the apostles. That group of pastors is who we call historically the early church fathers. They wrote a lot of letters and a lot of sermons in those, they quote a lot of scripture, and if you took all of the other, if all you had was the 30,000 plus quotations from the early church father, you could reconstruct the entire New Testament word for word. So understand, there is a massive amount of literary uh, documents and evidence to point us to as you work through what the original documents said. It's why scholars are... are uh, completely confident that, it, that when you have a good, healthy translation based on the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, you have a translation based on what was in the original documents. Give you this. In, in history, certain works to be considered, be considered uh, trustworthy have to have a certain amount of outside proof to validate what they say. One of the most, if not the most, well-attested literary work of history is Josephus' History of the Jewish People. It has over 450 outside works attesting that what it says is true. And it's one of the absolute highest ever discovered in the history of the human race in terms of well-documented. Does anyone want to take a stab in bravery at how many Scripture has? It's a number over 10,500. There you go. 
So here's what I want you to see. We have all of this, all of these things. Now, um, and, and here's how stuff was translated down. When it comes to variants, when we say variants, in all these thousands of manuscripts, sometimes you see one that says something and one that says something different. And this is where a lot of critics of Scripture jump in and go, did you know your Bible has errors? Because we, all these manuscripts, they all say different things. So let's tackle that question. You see on your sheet, there's three Three aspects, textual, historical, and scientific. Let's talk textual for a second. The Old Testament text was painstakingly copied and passed down by trained Jewish scholars. In fact, there's still parts, if you go to Masada today, you can step in a room and you can see them copying, where when they would copy, so here's the book of Genesis, here's this copy, here's the new copy, You've got the scribe who's going word by word. Every time they come to the personal name of, of God, they stop, get up, go, bathe themselves ritually, come back with special ink and a special pen, write the name, put it down, go back, wash themselves ceremonially, go back, pick up the original pen. They painstakingly, not only that, but there is someone over their shoulder watching them copy. And when they get to the end of that page, page would not be the correct word, but for our sake, page, they stop and they count how many, and actually it wouldn't be this way, it'd be this way. They count how many words, and if it doesn't match perfectly, they toss it, burn it, and start over. The Old Testament has been painstakingly copied down. In fact, most of the critics do not attack the variants of the, of the Old Testament. In fact, 90% of the Old Testament documents, there is no variation. What variation is there are primarily spelling and grammar mistakes that somehow didn't get caught. The finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948 furthered this. In fact, one of the, of course, one of the famous ones in there is they found a, a uh, almost fully intact, complete scroll of the book of Isaiah dating back uh, to, to, uh, to, I think, like six or 700 B.C. There's several facsimiles that are, that are around today. If you go translate that Hebrew to English, do you know what you get? The book of Isaiah you read in your English Bibles. It's not different. In fact, a lot of the critics before they found it, the critics in the 1800s and early 1900s would go, you know, all those prophecies you say that are in Isaiah, that he'd be born of a virgin, he'd be born in Bethlehem, Isaiah 53, those were, you know, you don't have, all of the manuscripts you have were after the time of Christ. That's just someone messing with you until they found one written almost a thousand years before the time of Christ and it was word for word the same. The Dead Sea Scrolls is one of the most important discoveries for, for the apologetics of Scripture we've had. So most of the time with the Old Testament, what you see is, as, as far as attacks are not so much the textual stuff, but you see people making attacks like, well, that's just myth that the Jews borrowed from another culture. The problem with that is, and I see that a lot in, in Christian circles, the problem with that is everything about the Old Testament is God commanding the Jews to be unlike every other culture, so they would have rejected it unless they were in idolatry, in which case they wouldn't have been allowed to put that down in Scripture. Or you see things like, well, Daniel didn't really write the book of Daniel, and the guy who wrote the book of Daniel did it sometime in the 100 B.C.s, not back in the uh, 500 B.C.s. And here's why. Because Daniel and Daniel chapter 2 is one of several places where Daniel hundreds of years prior, correctly prophesies every major empire for the next 500 years of human history. So if you can come back and go, well, that was written when the Romans were already in power. It's just, it's just a, it's, it's, it's writing from after it's happened. Well, then it takes away the supernatural aspect instead of going, no, actually it was written when it was said it was written by Daniel. Here's the other thing about Daniel. Daniel's the most challenged Old Testament book. Here's why. Because Daniel has prophecy that hadn't been fulfilled yet. That is very specific frightening though so old testament that's the old testament new testament in the new testament among all the manuscripts there are 400,000 variants that's one variant that's three variants per every word in the new testament you go oh my goodness well that's due to the fact that there are so many new testament manuscripts so many translations of new testament manuscripts and so many quotations by church fathers and like me not all the church fathers were good spellers But there's four categories of variants. The first two, neither meaningful nor viable, 
or uh, viable but not meaningful account for over 70% of all the variants. You know what both those categories are? They are spelling errors. And here's what I mean by that in Greek. Greek, the, the Greek word for theos, I don't have a whiteboard, I, I draw it for you, but, but sigma, which is our, it would be the S sound in Greek, there's two different ways you can write a sigma. One way if it appears at the beginning or middle of a word, one way at the end of the word. So if you write the, the word for God, theos, but put the sigma for the end of the word, or if you write the word theos and, and you put the, the, the symbol for thigma the way it appears in the middle of the word, well, that would be a variant. Is that a variant that shows God's word in error? No, it says that somebody wrote the wrong sigma. Didn't even write the wrong letters, wrong sigma. Or John's name, uh, uh, John's name in Greek sometimes is spelled with two N's, sometimes it's spelled with one N. That's what those kind of variants are. And again, that includes not just the New Testament manuscripts, but all of the translations and quotations that are there. Those are not viable. The third category is meaningful but not viable. That accounts for the next 29% of errors, of errors, variants between those things. Here's a great example. 1 Thessalonians 2.9. Nearly every manuscript of 1 Thessalonians 2.9 will read and say this. In fact, let's just, we'll just do a little test here. I didn't read it ahead of time today, so I'll see what the New, Te- New American Standard says first. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 2.9 says, We proclaim to you the gospel of God. But there's a medieval manuscript of 1 Thessalonians that says the gospel of Christ. Or in Luke chapter 6, verse 22, Jesus is talking about you'll be persecuted, and in all of the manuscripts we have, it says account on the Son of Man, except for one medieval manuscript which leaves out on account of one of man, on the account of the Son of Man. That's what the other 29% are. And I'm going to ask you a question. Is there a difference between, between gospel of God and gospel of Christ? No. There's zero difference. It means one guy in the Middle Ages. We're not even talking the stuff from the first century. One guy in the Middle Ages had a brain fart and wrote Christ instead of God. But it's really not a brain fart because Christ is God. That leads us to the last category meaningful and viable, which are less than 1% of all variants. That means literally out of 400,000 variants, less than 4,000 are this. And these are the ones the critics blow out of proportion. These are the ones where a word is different and the difference in that word changes the meaning of the text. Let me give you an example. 1 John 1, 4, some ancient manuscripts say, we are writing so that our joy may be complete. Some say we are writing so that your joy may be complete. Now, depending on the word, it changes the meaning. One is your joy, one is my joy. But it is nothing to change the doctrine of the story of Scripture. And in fact, in your Bibles, when that happens, if you have a, a, a reference Bible, you will typically see a little, a little letter or number above that word and then a little note in the footnotes that tells you some manuscripts say this, some manuscripts say this. And you want to know why, how on earth could there be the difference of our you? Because in Greek, it's a difference of one letter in spelling. So if one guy smudged it on the paper and the next guy copying it saw the smudge looking this way, boom, that's how you get it. And there's no danger there. The reality is God has always used human hands in the text of Scripture, and he still preserves it. Or another example might be uh, the adulterous woman in John chapter 8. Some manuscripts have that. Some manuscripts don't. Hmm except there's nothing in that story that contradicts anything else in all of the Word of God. So is it original? Was it added in later? There's debate on that, but there's nothing in that story that contradicts a single thing about the person and character of God and Christ and how, how things work. Are you all with me? If you're following me, give me some head nods. If you're not following me, don't head nod. Just need a little bit. One of the leading critics of the New Testament is a guy by the name of Bart Ehrman. He's a guy that a lot of people like to quote. In fact, he's the one who said, what good is it 
that the originals were inspired. We don't have the originals. We only have error-ridden copies, and the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals, and, and they're different from them. He's also the same guy in saying that that the critics like to say who said this when really pressed about all of the variants in Scripture. Essential Christian beliefs are not affected in any way by textual variants. So the same critic who's trying to undermine your belief and confidence in Scripture is also the one who says, on a serious level, those variants, they do nothing to change the story and doctrine of Scripture and who it tells you God is and what God's doing. And Bart Ehrman is a critic of Scripture. He would not believe what you and I believe. Not only this, besides the textual things, there's prophetic things. We see we, we see hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in the New Testament. We see Old Testament prophecies that aren't just fulfilled in the New Testament, but are fulfilled in the pages of history. Daniel 2 is a perfect example. Babylon, then will come Persia. Isn't it interesting that in Persia, uh, per, we, we just say the Persian Empire, but in all, there's two different prophecies in Daniel that refer to Persia Empire, and both of them carry the imagery of two. Why? Because the Persian Empire was actually an alliance between the Persian and the Medes, two different empires that chose to combine for one rule. Then you have the Greek and the Roman Empire all prophesied, and you also have empires that have yet to come or maybe have come, depending on if you want to believe we're living right before Christ is coming back or not. We not only see that, we see fulfilled prophecy regarding Christ. We looked at that back last December. The chances of, of one person fulfilling eight prophecies about the Messiah from the Old Testament is impossible statistically. Yet Jesus fulfilled hundreds. Not only that, but catch this. It's interesting if you really study, uh, if we were to rewind the clock back a hundred years ago and be here gathered in church having this conversation, or let's say we were gathered talking about the end times, many of us would not hold probably the end time view you hold today. You know why? Because the world was seemingly getting better and better, more and more peaceful. There was no nation of Israel. The Jews were certainly an ethnic people, but there was no nation geopolitically of Israel. We would have had a different, because we would have said, well, we don't see, how could this be? And all of a sudden, what about now? Well, Scripture's really clear that for the end times to come, there has to be a geopolitical nation of Israel, which was part of the fallout of World War II. We see prophecy brought about even in our own lives. I'll give you this. Uh, obviously, back for those of you who, who were uh, very alive in the Cold War, obviously there was the threat of the, from the north of Israel of the Soviet Union. And then 30 years ago, the Soviet Union fell apart. And, men, and some would say, ah, Russia's still a threat. Some believed, oh, look, it's a new order. It's a new day. Yet all of a sudden, look at where we're at today. And what is the nation and major capital due north of Jerusalem? It's Ukraine and Kiev. We are seeing prophecy. Now, don't go, don't, pastor's not saying that Jesus is coming tomorrow. Don't go saying that. Uh, but I want you to understand, it's not just with the text. When we look at what Scripture actually claims prophetically, we see that what it has claimed is without error, which should make us all the more confident of that prophecy which we don't have an answer for because it hadn't been fulfilled yet because scripture's got a thousand batting average god has a thousand batting average on his prophecies so what are counters to inerrancy people say there's errors in the text we've already looked at that nearly every error over 99 percent of the quote-unquote errors in scripture are spelling and grammar mistakes and those that are left after that don't in any way actually change the message of scripture at all there's not errors in the text. We don't have the original manuscripts, you're right, and that's a really good thing. So you and I live in a day and age where we still have access to our original manuscripts. You can go to the Capitol, you can see the, 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 the Declaration of Independence and Constitution, barely though, because the lights are so dim because they're so old. Those documents are not even 300 years old. We're talking about original manuscripts, some of which were written, written 4,000 years ago. What we do have are thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of well-documented copies that allow us to piece it all together and go, no, we know with absolute certainty what the originals say because they're so well attested. Well, there's clear contradictions in the Bible. I encourage you, if you get that question, don't be afraid of it, but ask them to show, well, show me where. Show me where. 
And don't be afraid if they show you something, you know, I don't know the answer. Would you allow me to go do a little research? Don't ever be afraid of tossing that out. People respect, respect honesty way more than they respect making up something. But a lot of times you'll find these are the kind of errors that are there. Well, in this gospel, it says Mary went to the tomb. In this gospel, it, and I'm serious about this. This is using by critics as an error in the contradiction in the Bible. This gospel says it was Mary. This gospel says there were women who went to the tomb. So one, one gospel decided to focus on one of the women and name her, and the other gospel just shows to tell you there were multiple women. I don't see how that's a contradiction. One of the classic ones is Judas, because one of the gospels portrays Judas's death by by, uh, by hanging, whereas in, the, I believe it's the book of Acts, and I might have switched them, but in the book of Acts, it talks about Jesus, Judas bursting over, open in the middle. Contradiction, false. The contradiction would be one book saying he was hung and the other book saying he was not hung. In fact, actually, medically, what happens if you hang yourself where Scripture indicates he hung himself, he would have remained hanging long after dying. And all of the gases in his body would have come trapped in his middle. It would have bloated and it would have ruptured, just like Scripture says it would have. Those are the kind of things people throw around as there's contradictions. Well, show me. Show me those. And you find that, that, that most are very easy. Now, there's some that are hard. There's a couple places. There's, it's hard to go, wait a minute. How do I, Daniel and I were talking about one Sunday, that God sent an evil spirit to plague Saul. Well, how does that work? There's a couple hard things there, but it's not a contradiction. It's a hard statement, but it's not a contradiction. The last is this, and I see this as probably one of the most damaging today because of the amount of people who are claiming Jesus but then twisting things. The Bible is only good for faith and spiritual matters. It is inerrant in faith and practice, but not in science, history, philosophy, ethics, politics, etc. That is Q4... We don't want to accept the miraculous in Scripture, but there's certain things we also like about Scripture, and this gives us the means to be right with Jesus and have a relationship, but claim whatever we want about creation or sexuality, or you just go on down the line of those things. This is dangerous because this runs around in quote-unquote Christian circles a lot more than the others do because the others are flat rejections of Scripture. This is a twisting of Scripture. And I mentioned earlier, if the Bible's not inerrant, we have problems. But the good news, and again, I told you I can't cover everything because we've got two other categories to hit. The good news is, if you have an English Bible that is a quality translation of the original manuscripts, and don't worry, if you go, well, how do I know? I'll tell you next week. We're going there. Promise. <laughs> promise. We're all going next week to the question of, well, how did we actually get all the Bible put together? Because some people go, ah, did you know the humans put it together? Yeah, humans kind of sort of put it together, depending on how you want to use that. We're going to talk about that next week, too, so don't worry if you've got those questions. Just uh, uh, come back next week to the same, same bat time, same bat channel, and we'll dive into it. <laughs> what I want you to see is Scripture is without error as far as the text is concerned. Now, people will throw historical and archaeological issues out to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Scripture talks about stuff that is not there. See, it's, it's false. We don't have that. Now, let's be clear. There are some things that Scripture talks about that Scripture is the only work of history that records it. Okay, give me an example. The only reason we know the names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are because of the Bible. There's no other documents out there floating around talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the reason for that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob weren't bigwig shots, people that would have been recorded in, in what limited documents would have been written back then, and they also lived 4,000 years ago. There's not a whole lot of documents from anywhere 4,000 years ago. And for people that view Scripture through a lens of, of modernity and naturalism who go, Scripture's just another work, we can't trust it, that's an issue. But if you view Scripture like you and I ought to as believers, it's God-breathed, and Scripture doesn't become a competition of history, it informs us of history that no one else could. So, same thing. You, everyone know the story of Balaam and the donkey? If you don't know the story, it's awesome. Balaam's being bribed to go prophesy against God's people. And his donkey keeps throwing him off because there's an angel that only the donkey can see and he's going to lop his head off. And, ba and Balaam keeps getting up and whipping the donkey. And then it says that God opens the mouth of the donkey. And 
I guess with Eddie Murphy's voice from Shrek, he, uh, he looks at Balaam and he says, what are you doing whipping me? There's an angel about to lop your head off. I saved your life three times. And anyways, people go, that's a crazy story. Balaam never existed. That's absolute nonsense. Until 1967 in Jordan, about 25 miles north of Moab, the camping spot of the Israelites, there was a fragment inscription recovered from 8 to 700 BC talking all about Balaam who, by the way, is mentioned in Nehemiah, Micah, 2 Peter, Jude, and Revelation. Minor figure in world history and even biblical story, but is mentioned multiple times. Uh, used to be, people used to say, well, you know, there's no evidence that there was ever a kingdom, King David. Until 1993 and 1994, they started digging up stuff all over the place that talked about the kingdom of David. They went back because of them, those discoveries to something that had been found 100 years prior and realized they didn't have the right, the right tools and discoveries to read the inscription pro- correctly and discovered they dug up stuff back in the 1800s that said Kingdom of David, House of David. Uh, one, one of the examples, um, one of the examples uh, or in, you've got books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and, and, and many of the individuals who were named in them were sold out. Ah, they made up. Actually, we've discovered not just their inscriptions, but we've discovered their palaces, their graves, their seals. Barak, Jeremiah, Jeremiah has a secretary, right, who writes all his stuff down. Barak, we, we find Barak's actual seal, which may not mean much to you and I, but that is the modern-day equivalent of finding his handwritten signature. Sargon, the king of Assyria, historians said, ah, he's made up until they found a fresh list of kings, the the, the core's bad list of kings and discovered, oh, he's not made up. Oh, not only that, but we just dug up his palace of over 200 rooms and 30 courtyards. Today, we know more about Sargon than any other Assyrian king on record. People look, if you, if you read Babel, uh, write, uh, Daniel chapter 5, the handwriting on the wall, it's, it talks about King Balthazar, ba- uh, Balthazar. Well, there was no King Balthazar of Babylon. The last king of Babylon was Nabonidus. Ah, see, Daniel. Man, that's, it was written several hundred years later with a bunch of dumb people who didn't know their history. Until they dug up a new... Uh, a new uh, Steel, which is basically a history text, and discovered Nabonidus was king, and he grew increasingly absent-minded and wanted to go live as a hermit in the desert. So though he remained the title of king, he appointed his son Balthazar to rule the empire in his place, who was ruling the night that is recorded in Daniel chapter 5. In every case, there are a lot of things people say, well, that didn't happen. The Bible's the only thing that says it. And there has yet to be an archaeological find that has contradicted Scripture. New Testament. The New Testament documents all were written within 60 years of Jesus' life. And we have a lot more documents from that time period in Rome. And we find that in those documents, there, 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 are, there, there are much, many, many things said. Listen to Josephus who's writing in, in the AD 90s, so about 60 years after Christ. And he's writing saying, about this time there lived Jesus a wise man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people who accept truth gladly. He went over many, uh, many Jews and many of the Greeks. Pilate, upon hearing him, accused by men of the highest standing amongst us, had condemned him to be crucified. Those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. And the tribe of Christians, so-called after him, still has not disappeared to this day. And uh, Ananus thought that he had a favorable opportunity because Festus was dead and Albinius was on his way. So he convened the judges of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, and certain others. He accused them of having transgressed the law, delivered them to be stones. Those of the inhabitants of the city who were considered the fair-minded and strict and observant as the law were offended at this. Therefore, they said back, and it goes on and on. This is Josephus, a man who hates Christianity. And I read you the version we know for sure is true. There's a couple other comments that are debated if, they're, if they were original to Josephus or not that go even further than that. Uh, Cornelius Tacticus was a Roman proconsul in 97 AD. Uh, this, is, this, is, um, this is an excerpt that uh, he wrote during the 60s, 30 years after Jesus' death. Christ, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. 
uh, there and a pernicious superstition was checked for the moment, only to break out once more, not only in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself, Rome, where all horrible or shameful things in the world collect and find a vogue. And derision accompanied therein, they were talking about Christians, they were covered with wild beast skins, torn to death by dogs, or they were fastened on crosses, or when daylight fell, they were burned to serve as lamps by night. And here's the, even the crazy thing, because Taxicus was a, pro, was a consul, he would have access to the Roman archives to actually see the official report ordering Christ's crucifixion. Pliny the Younger uh, lived a little bit later. He's, he's traveling in, uh, in Bithynia, uh, area that Paul mentions in his letters. They maintained that their guilt or error had amounted the Christians only to this, that they had been in the habit of meeting on an appointed day before daybreak and singing a hymn to Christ as if to a God and binding themselves with an oath not to commit any crime but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery, from breach of faith and from repudiating a trust when called upon to honor it. After this ceremony, it had been their custom to disperse and reassemble to take, a, uh, to take food of a harmless kind, a.k.a. the Lord's Supper, he says, Christian met on a fixed day. They sang songs to Jesus as if he's God, which confirms exactly what the New Testament says. Understand from that time we have, uh, and even then there were people who said, well, there's no man named Pontius Pilate. We have all these records from Rome, no Pontius Pilate. Until in Caesarea Maritime in 1961, they dug up a bunch of stuff inscribed Pontius Pilate. And which you can go there and you can see it to this day. The Pool of Bethesda, ah, that was an invention of John until 1964 when they discovered the pool of Beth pools of Bethesda, right where John said they'd be. Over and over and over we find with history, yes, the Bible talks about things we have no other evidence for. But if we understand that Scripture is the Word of God, then the Bible also serves as a history informant rather than something that has to be proven. And time and time again, archaeology backs up what is there. All right, I'm looking at the clock. I'll come back to some of this stuff next week, but let me give you a couple things on science. Here's the ultimate challenge with science and scripture. And I'll be done right at seven o'clock because I know choir, you got to duck out. The challenge with science and scripture is this. The Bible describes a lot of supernatural things. Something that is supernatural by definition is beyond natural. Science, by definition, is the study of what is natural. Science, by definition, is inductive reasoning, which you look at something that you can see and observe and experiment on. The problem with trying to put science over miracles is you can't experiment on a miracle because a miracle is, by definition, an alteration of what is natural. So when people try to come in and debate all the miracles from a philosophical standpoint, it is a moot point because science does not have anything to say to it. But the reason there is such a strong opinion there is because of a, a, a worldview or an aspect of worldview. We mentioned it when we did the brief overview that philosophically people ascribe to naturalism. That view which says that which is real and true is only that which is nature and nothing else. Well, if you hold to that view, yes, every miracle is an impossibility. But that's not the view we hold to. So understand that it's impossible. There's a limit to science. And, and I, love, I love this little story. There was an atheist in France. And I want you to listen, because this is perfectly the mindset of, of, of those who deny miracles with naturalism. There was a place in Lourdes where there was a fountain that people would come to and claim the waters healed them. And so you'd see a crutch or, or you'd know, see crutches and canes laid there. And so this, the atheist, uh, the atheist, uh, Antoli, uh, Antoli he, he comes and he describes the story. He says, he says, I was in Lourdes in August and I paid a visit to, uh, to this fountain where crutches were hung up as a token of cure. My companion pointed to these and he said this. So he's with a buddy, his buddy says, one wooden leg would be more to the point. Now catch what he's saying. That's great there's all these crutches and canes, but anybody can fake it and anybody can hobble off. But if somebody had a wooden leg, it means they don't have a leg. And if they hung their wooden leg up, that means their leg came back. That 
would be a miracle. That would be really something. And this is what Anatole said. It was the word of a man of sense. But then listen to this. But speaking philosophically, the wooden leg would be no more convincing than the crutch. If an observer who is truly scientific saw that, they, he would not say, look, a miracle. He would say this, look, an observation so far unique points us to a presumption that under conditions we don't yet understand, the tissues of a human leg have the property to reorganize themselves like a crab or lobster's claws in a lizard's tail, but even more rapidly. Here we have a fact of nature that seems to be in contradiction with other facts, and this arises from our ignorance and shows that the science of our physiology must be completely reconstituted because it wasn't constituted correct. Now here's what he's saying. If you go, I, I, what, Pastor, what are you saying there? Here's what he's saying. As a true committed naturalist, it doesn't matter if you show me a miracle, I'll never accept it. Understand that that's part of the battle. When we talk about does science contradict with the Bible? Does, no, true science does not contradict the Bible. But science based out of a false starting point that can be manipulated and deceived absolutely contradicts the Bible, but not because the Bible's at fault, but because science is at fault. And I would call it not real science, it's just other things there. All right, I told you we'd be done at 7. So we'll come back a little bit to that next week and cover canonization. I hope that some of this continues to be helpful, and we will, we will really wrap up. I know next week is spring break for some, so if you need to hop on via Zoom, or we'll obviously record it, post it up the next day online, but uh, we plan to be here uh, because for many of us, spring break does not impact our daily plans presently. And uh, those of you it does, if you're here, be here. If not, know that we want you to be safe and enjoy, enjoy whatever you're doing for spring break. And uh, we will see you, church family, Sunday.